0: Robinson, I'm talking to Vijay Vijayasekaran, who is a paediatric ear, nose and throat surgeon who works in Perth. He's performed uh, two years of fellowship training with Robert Cotton in Cincinnati and works at the Princess Margaret Hospital in Perth, as well as the adult hospital in airway reconstruction. So Sian, to start with, in relation to airway reconstruction, how do most of these patients present to you?
1: Um, I guess we'll, should we, we'll stick to mainly talking about pediatric airway reconstruction yes. because they uh, present very differently. Most of these patients uh, are present, referred by either the um, NICU, neonatal ICU, um, due to stridor or failure of ex- extubation. But there are other patients who uh, then are referred by pediatricians who've made it out of hospital who have ongoing symptoms related to their airway. And occasionally, uh, patients who present as emergencies to the emergency department following discharge from hospital uh, with airway symptoms. Okay. Do many
0: uh, do many patients present to you for an exit procedure in relation to this, uh, to for paediatric airway reconstruction?
1: Well, usually not. I mean, the um, we see we do probably one exit procedure a year, and they usually present um, with a mass in the head and neck rather than. Um, with, a, with um, a tracheal or a stenosis or something like that.
0: Okay. And when you see these patients, um, what information is uh, pertinent in history um, for yourself?
1: So in the history, we uh, ask for history of strido or snoring, a history of intubation. I like to ask if the, the strido is inspiratory, expiratory or biphasic, uh, and you know some patients and parents will be able to give you that. We ask for questions regarding exacerbation with feeding and, um, uh, or exacerbation with crying, which is normally seen in conditions such as laryngomalacia, whereas whereas children whose airway obstruction is improved when they're crying would suggest more a nasal obstruction like a coenyl atresia or adenoidal hypertrophy due to the mouth breathing with crying that bypasses the nasal airway. We ask questions about positioning, um, so children who... Are much worse in the supine position, may have epiglottic prolapse or uh, tongue based cysts like a lingual thyroid or something like that. I ask about dysphonia and the quality of the cry. So, a harsh cry would suggest laryngeal inflammation or uh, glottic pathology, whereas a silent cry may imply uh, a laryngeal web or something along those lines. We ask about cough. Um, you know, children who cough every time they feed may have. Uh, Laryngeal cleft or an H type tracheosophageal fistula, whereas kids who have a chronic moist sounding breath, um, a breathy, um, a chronic moist um, a cough or uh, a gurgly uh, breath may have uh, tracheomalacia. So they're the things we ask in the history. In relation to physical examination, what, what are the features that you look for? So once again, we look for strida, um, mouth breathing, which may suggest a nasal obstruction. Signs of respiratory distress, accessory muscle use, which um, give you some idea as to the degree of uh, the airway obstruction. Relationships, once again, with crying and mouth breathing. Uh, I examine their growth chart because children who are failing to thrive usually have a significant airway problem as opposed to children who don't. And then I start the examination from the tip of the nose and work my way down. So we look at the piriform aperture. I look for um, uh, nasolacrimal duct cysts. Uh, we look at the mouth, we look for the, for the shape of the mandible, for, um, for example, in Pierre Rabanne, uh evidence of narrow palate, um, uh, in uh, other syndromic children, macroglossia. And then um, nearly every child who sees me um, for an airway evaluation has a fibro-optic endoscopy in the office, and that gives us an idea of looking uh, at the, uh, the nose for the posterior Posterior nasal space, looking at the coena, we can look at the tongue base, and then the supraglottis, and you can look for vocal cord movement, uh, laryngeal clefts, uh, laryngomalacia. And sometimes you can even see into the subglottis, seeing subglottic cysts or subglottic stenoses.
0: When you're performing that uh, nasal endoscopy in the office, do you use any anaesthetic?
1: So in children under the age of 6 months, I do not use any local anaesthetic. Um, because in my experience, in a child who's got a dynamic airway problem, the local anesthetic can make the airway worse by changing their laryngeal reflexes. So, And I've had some bad experiences where the, the laryngeal relation gets worse after local anesthetic lands on their larynx. And so I tend to do it without any local anesthetic in little kids. It is obviously uncomfortable. Uh, it does result in a screaming baby for about 20 seconds while you do the procedure. But at the end of the procedure, uh, as soon as the scope's out, they're happy and go back to normal.
0: Okay. If you proceed to doing a laryngoscopy, bronchoscopy, and esophagoscopy on these patients, what are the features that you're looking for on that initial LBO in relation to reconstruction?
1: So, in um, obviously, um, I, we look at the whole airway, nose down to bronchi. I like to make sure that there's only, uh, and, you know, we need to make sure that there's not more than one level of obstruction. So if you've got a subglottic stenosis with severe pharyngeal malacia, there's no point fixing the subglottic stenosis because you'll, you'll still need a trachea for the upper airway stuff. So you need to look at the tongue, the, the supraglottis. You need to make sure they've got normal vocal fold function because there's no point fixing a subglottic stenosis if you've got bilateral cord paralysis. We assess the subglottis. We look at the trachea for trachea malacia. Complete tracheal rings, having an accessory a right upper like bronchus or a pig bronchus is a very strong association with complete tracheal rings. Um, and so if one sees one, a, a pig bronchus, then you should be highly suspicious of having complete tracheal rings distally. And then uh, I look at the bronchi to make sure that there's no bronchomalacia or uh, other extrinsic compressions of the trachea or bronchi. You also look for features of, of laryngeal inflammation, so children who've got chronic reflux disease or asynophatic esophagitis and an inflamed larynx tend to respond very poorly to laryngeal reconstruction and often reach to nose. So it's important to control uh, reflux disease and and other forms of laryngeal inflammation. It's important to make sure children aren't aspirating. So children who um, have swallowing difficulties uh, also have poor results following laryngotracheal reconstruction. And in these children, if you suspect aspiration, I perform a uh, FEES study or a video fluoroscopy um, to um, evaluate the larynx prior to the reconstruction. You may um, have to perform both a rigid um, Hopkins rod telescopic uh, evaluation plus a fibre optic uh, examination because they, are, they provide different information. A fibre optic examination, laryngoscopy, bronchoscopy, is much better at, uh, at diagnosing dynamic airway problems whereas the rigid bronchoscopy gives you much better visualization of more structural problems. How
0: do you grade supraglottic, glottic, and subglottic pathology or stenosis?
1: Well, um, supraglottic um, pathology, the most common abnormality is is laryngomalacia, and I don't specifically grade the laryngomalacia. I just um, comment on the abnormality, so one, the short area epiglottic folds, two arotenoid prolapse and three epiglottic prolapse with an omega-shaped epiglottis. And basically the surgery uh, is designed to address the abnormality rather than to stage it. Laryngeal clefts are graded uh, from one to four. Laryngeal atresias are graded one to four. Uh, There are several different, uh, several types of uh, laryngeal atresia, and they're probably best described schematically rather than verbally. So I won't go through the whole description. And then subglottic stenosis uh, is best, in my opinion, staged using the Cotton-Meyer scale. Uh, and the way uh, we do this is to intubate the patient with an endotracheal tube that we feel will fit the airway. And we use the largest possible endotracheal tube that will fit the airway that will permit a leak between 10 and 25 centimetres of water pressure. And this tube then will determine the largest possible tube that will be used in that patient which then can be compared to the cottonmire grading scale, which would give you a percentage stenosis. And once you've got the percentage stenosis, uh, you can grade it according to uh, 1 to 4. Okay.
0: In these patients, um, what are the indications for a tracheostomy? And also, when you're performing the tracheostomy, uh, how do you do do it and where do you place it?
1: Well, a tracheostomy is placed um, for airway obstruction that can't be fixed by any other modality. I normally use a a vertical incision um, placed between the cricoid and the sternal notch. Usually not that long, uh, maybe a centimeter in length. And then essentially a blunt dissection through, um, uh, once you've got through the fat, through the strap muscles to expose the trachea. Uh, And then um, I use a vertical incision through the second to the fifth ring, uh, prior to which Stay sutures, 4 uh, uh, proline are placed on either side of the incision. Once the incision is made, uh, I use a maturation stitch so the skin uh, of the anterior neck is sutured to the trachea to formally uh, make a tract. Therefore, from day one, you've got a, a fully functional stoma and then uh, the appropriate size tracheostomy tube is placed. The stay sutures remain in place for a week uh, and they are marked right and left for emergency reintubation if necessary. And at the first tracheostomy change, usually at a week, uh, the, the sutures are removed and all our patients remain in the ICU for the first seven days following a tracheostomy. For that first tracheostomy change, do you take the patient back to theatre? No, the, the first tracheostomy change is performed in the intensive care unit. Okay.
0: At what age, if a patient has significant uh, laryngeal pathology, at what age or weight uh, do you plan to perform the reconstructive
1: procedure? So, I don't have specific guidelines as such. Uh, My main guideline is reconstruction happens when the patient is ready. There are really two extremes. One um, is the isolated subglottic stenosis in a preterm infant who is otherwise well uh, with minimal comorbidities, in that way, in that I mean, no heart disease. Um, an FiO2 of 0.21, so the child on air indicating no significant um, chronic lung disease, and who's failed uh, endoscopic treatment, such as balloon dilation or an endoscopic cricoid split, uh, in those children, I will perform a laryngotracheal reconstruction instead of performing a tracheostomy. And those patients usually respond very well to uh, a laryngotracheal reconstruction using a posterior cricoid split and an anterior cricoid split with uh, thyroid alar grafting, Uh, And if you look at uh, the the results of this in the literature, the results are in excess of 80% success rate of that simple operation. The great benefits are avoidance of tracheostomy and all the issues related to a long-term tracheostomy in a child. At the other extreme are the complicated children, often with a syndrome or multiple comorbidities, who have uh, oxygen requirements, ventilation issues, reflux disease, Um, There may be a difficult intubation, they may have comorbid uh, cardiac problems. In those children, a tracheostomy is placed and reconstruction uh, normally performed as a double stage is delayed until um, their other comorbidities are, are um, acceptable. Usually this is somewhere between the ages of 18 months and 4 years of age. Are you able to briefly describe the procedures
0: um, which you might perform for reconstruction uh, in patients with, um, with significant laryngeal or, or subglottic pathology?
1: So if we're talking about subglottic stenosis, as described uh, previously, if it's a straightforward subglottic stenosis in an, in an infant who is otherwise well and uh, under the age of 6 to 9 months, form a laryngotracheal reconstruction with anterior thyroid grafting and a posterior cricoid split, done as a single stage. In the more severe cases, children who are tracheostomy-dependent with comorbidities, the surgery is performed as a double stage, normally with anterior and posterior costal cartilage grafts with a suprastomal stent placed for two weeks following the reconstruction. The stomal stent is then removed at somewhere between two and four weeks following the reconstruction. And then decannulation occurs usually several months after the surgery once um, any granulation tissue is treated or any edema has settled.
0: Are you able to um, describe briefly what sort of <laughs> post-operative surveillance you'd normally
1: perform for these patients? So, sorry, if I could just go back. The, in children with bilateral vocal cord par- paralysis, we tend to use a posterior cartilage graft. Mm-hmm. In children with severe subglottic stenosis, uh, I'll, uh, so grade 4 subglottic stenosis, my preference is to to uh, perform a cricotracheal resection. Uh, and in children with a distal tracheal stenosis, so not involving the subglottis, uh, but mid-trachea or distal trachea, uh, my preference is a slide tracheoplasty. In the proximal trachea, you can do this off-bypass. In the distal trachea, I normally do it with our cardiac surgeons who place the patient on bypass, and then we perform the slide tracheoplasty. Going back to the, the surveillance question, patients have, if they have a single-stage reconstruction, they have a microlaryngoscopy and bronchoscopy uh, performed at the time of extubation, not always before extubation, sometimes a day or so after extubation, and then another one a few weeks later to ensure that... Uh, Uh, there has been no restenosis or granulation tissue formation. And then subsequent to this, uh, it's only based on clinical indication of symptoms. In a child who's had a double stage uh, laryngotracheal reconstruction, at the time of stent removal, so two to four weeks after the surgery, we perform uh, laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy and at that time uh, debride any granulation tissue, um, sometimes perform a balloon dilation if there's significant edema. And then Subsequently to this, another a bronchoscopy uh, a week or so later, and then after that, only uh, at the point where we, are, we consider the child at, at a point where we can decannulate them, a bronchoscopy, a microlaryngoscopy bronchoscopy is performed to uh, ensure that the airway is patent prior to moving down the decannulation route.
0: So in the, in the tracheostomized patient, or what are your general principles <coughs> for decannulation um, or criteria for consideration for decannulation?
1: So we first uh, perform a microlaryngoscopy, bronchoscopy to ensure that airway is patent. Uh, and two, uh, we, uh, if that's d- deemed um, correct, we downsize the tracheostomy tube. Uh, and I normally go down at least two sizes. So if the child has a 5 millimeter tracheostomy tube in situ, I put in a 4 uh, at the very largest. And sometimes it's 3.5 We then proceed through an extended period of capping of the tracheostomy tube. Most of these patients, by the time they get to us, have already tried a passimur valve. So leading up to this point, they have been breathing in through their tracheostomy and out through their native airway. The next step, obviously, is to start capping the tube. So we place a cap on. Uh, I normally leave the cap on during waking hours only whilst the child is in hospital and monitored for the first 48 hours. If they tolerate that, then we do capping at night time or when the child is asleep. Sometimes this is done in association with a sleep study to ensure that there's no uh, airway obstruction. If the child tolerates this, then they usually go home for a period of two to four weeks where they cap uh, whilst awake. And this is a test to see if they, how they cope in their, their native environment uh, with exertion and so on with the tracheostomy tube capped. If they satisfactorily pass this test, they come back to hospital. They're once again capped overnight for two nights to ensure once again that they're able to tolerate nocturnal capping. And if that's the case, the tracheostomy tube is decannulated on the ward. And then the patient remains in hospital for a further 48 hours at a bare minimum to ensure that they tolerate decannulation.
0: And finally, is there anything else which you'd like to add uh, or elaborate on uh, which we've covered or any point which we haven't covered which you'd like to further uh, elaborate on as a parting comment?
1: Um I think something that's really changing in paediatric airway surgery is that we're moving more and more towards avoiding a tracheostomy with every possible um, method we have available to us. So we're doing more endoscopically. Uh, Endoscopic cricoid splits and balloon dilation have avoided the the need for um, open airway surgery. And then in children who we previously would have thought needed a tracheostomy, some of those children are, are having um, primary airway reconstructions to avoid a tracheostomy um, in subglottic stenosis, in bilateral vocal cord paralysis, where a posterior cartilage graft can be placed endoscopically to avoid a tracheostomy in a child who, who would have airway obstruction and require a tracheostomy in other cases, in, in, the, in the past. Sheehan, thank you very much for your talk. Thank you very much, Dan.